Our readings this morning can be found from 1 Kings 19, thank you Simon, which is page 360 in our Old Testament section of the Bibles, starting at the beginning of the chapter. Elijah flees to Horeb. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came 
and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Japhat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. It's lovely to be back here with you. You may not remember, but I remember you because you hosted a lovely ordination for Mike Wilkins a few years ago, which was a splendid occasion. And now you've got Esther, so things are good here. It's lovely to be back and lovely to share some thoughts with you this morning. Friends of mine who do not have Christian faith often struggle with the question, does God really speak today in our world? And if God does, then how? And today in this series on listening to God, we're looking at part of the Elijah story. I think I'm going to need a bit of water. Would you mind... I can tell my voice is a little scratchy and I've got a little bit of a way to go yet in my sermon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to concentrate on what happens to Elijah in the story, but of course there's always the bigger picture of how God works in the world, and so we mustn't forget that either. So in the bit of the story just before the chapter that we had read so beautifully for us, thank you both for reading, uh, Elijah had reached the absolute pinnacle of his career as a prophet when he confronted the worshippers of another god called Baal on Mount Carmel. And God had been revealed then in an all-consuming fire. It had caused a sensation. And Elijah walked away from Mount Carmel, a hero. But chapter 19 is not very heroic, is it? Elijah's life is under threat. The king's wife, Jezebel, wants him dead. Scared, witless, he runs away, out into the wilderness. From the heights of success to the pits of depression, so Elijah fell. 
And some of that may be familiar to some of us too, that life can feel like a roller coaster, from the heights of spiritual certainty and a rich experience of God to times when we doubt or are discouraged or don't know where to turn. It seems to be part of the human condition. And so, whether positive or negative, emotions are part of being human. And we need to take care not to make our emotions a measure of our spiritual health, because that can be misleading. Likewise, being, <clears throat> being happy is not always a good measure of our spiritual health either. So poor old Elijah had given up. He left his country in the north and travelled south and kept on going, abandoning God's land of Israel for the desert. Elijah's emotions have pushed him to the very brink of despair. But God does not give up nearly as easily as we give up on him. God came to Elijah in the desert in the midst of his despair. And it's worth noting that, that the translation of that word angel in the Hebrew simply means a messenger. And the Bible can use the word messenger to describe the presence of God, of God himself, or sometimes God's messengers were human beings who served God's purposes. I felt like there was a God's messenger on the door this morning when I arrived from Somerset to Bath, not knowing where the church was, not knowing where to park, and there was a messenger on the door showing me my parking spot and welcoming me with a smile. God's messengers, human beings who serve God's purposes. But clearly, Elijah was ministered to by messengers of God, and he was given food to drink and something to eat. And later God questioned Elijah twice, and Elijah responded with the same negative answer both times. In his state of emotional distress, he is not very responsive to God. But God was patient with Elijah. God did what was necessary to bring him to a place where he could respond. And then we get to verses 9 onwards, which is the heart of the story. God's still working with Elijah. God's persistent questions gently pushing Elijah towards a faithful response. Before he responded, though, he learned something crucial about God. Mount Horeb, where Elijah found himself after his long journey through the desert, was the very mountain where Moses had encountered God. Remember the story of the fire and the burning bush? It was at this mountain that God had given the law to Moses amid fire and smoke and thunder. And Elijah might just have expected some sort of new overwhelming revelation that would convince him of God's power. But what happens? He didn't find God in the wind, nor in the earthquake, nor in the fire. It was an unseen soft sound that drew Elijah to a point where he could finally respond to God. The gentle whisper of God. 
And I think that one of the key things that Elijah discovered was that he had to let God be God. He couldn't make God do or behave in the way that he wanted God to. And I think our world cannot bear often to let God be God. Why? Because it puts page to the illusion that we're in control. If the world lets God be God, we are no longer in control. And we too, if we're honest, find it hard sometimes to let God be God. For if we were really to let God be God, we would be so bowled over by God's abundance and zest and passion and creativity and God's love and passion and grace that he has for our world that we would see beyond our failings and our disputes, beyond our anxieties and our worries for the future. We would be so in tune with the ways of the kingdom that we would live and love and worship without care for tomorrow. And at times I know this and I grasp it with joy and clarity and perspective. And at other times, like Elijah, it's an uphill struggle to pray and to live and to see sometimes even beyond the freckle on my nose. For like Elijah, we have feet of clay, but God loves even those very feet of clay. We are human, and humans, to quote T.S. Eliot, cannot bear very much reality. So how do you prevent God being God in your life? How can you let God be God in your life? And it's not just about that dull list of our sins and failings, although they need to be confessed and they need to be forgiven, just as we did earlier on in the service. And we need to be forgiven. Why? So that God can reveal God's self to us. For actually, confession is, is, is really about me, me, me. It's about I, I, I. But when confession is true and forgiveness received, then the I sort of disappears and the ego is subdued and the abundance of God is before us and we can worship with heart and soul and mind as we are commanded to. We can love God and find that we can love our neighbor. We can respond to God's voice and respond to God's call. It's as if I melt away and God takes up God's space within me and around me and into the universe. We are neither too small nor too big in the sight of God. We are loved and cherished and made free. Not letting God be God can result in us actually fashioning God in our own image or trying to describe God in ways that are manageable to us and that limits God too. Or using words that we like and worship that's well-paced and nicely sung. But... I wonder sometimes if God's spirit longs to break free from the ways we try to control, for we all want to control. We like the illusion that we can control God. 
Elijah learns to let God be God, to let God be to him as God chose to be to him and not to make him in his image. We're not told what the gentle sound was. It's not important. The contrast is clear. God is not always in the loud and showy stuff. We must let God be God so that God can work in the way that God wants in the world. And sometimes he is heard unexpectedly in the soft and subtle sounds of life as we are gently drawn to listen. And we must be willing to listen intently, for God can surprise us. If we look for God in these things, in the wild, showy things only, and sometimes God is there, we may miss him in the quiet, the ordinary, the unseen, and the gentle sounds of our life. God called Elijah back to involvement with the nitty-gritty things of life. He was still God's prophet. He went on to anoint kings and stir up rebellion. God was still at work in the world because Elijah let God be God. But Elijah had some waiting to do. He had 40 days walking in that wilderness in the depths of despair. And I think that waiting is a key part of how we listen to God. And when we find ourselves in tough places, and for some of us here today, that might be very close to home, either for ourselves or for people we love, how do we find ourselves reacting? Waiting often feels long and hard the waiting for God to feel present to us rather than absent, the waiting for God to offer his gentle healing, the waiting for God's voice to show us a way through, the waiting for God to give us just enough strength or courage or compassion for the coming day. Waiting is about patience. It's about God's patience with us and our patience with ourselves and with God and with the circumstances that we find ourselves in. It is about living with and in God's promises even if they seem far distant and unavailable. Elijah had to wait. He had to wait to let God be God. The writer Henri Nouwen summed it up thus. He said, a waiting person is a patient person. And the word patience means the willingness to stay where we are and live the situation out to the fullest in the belief that something hidden there will manifest itself to us. Patient people dare to stay where they are. Patient living means to live actively in the present and to wait there the willingness to stay where we are. So often we would like to be in, uh, out of the difficult places and into easier ones. It takes courage to dare sometimes to stay where we are and to find hope in that place. But it can become a grace-filled place, 
a place touched by the generosity of God, a place where we discover God's love again. Well, life may be going okay for you, going well even. What does waiting have to do with you if that's where you are today? Well, it's not passive. It's about becoming actively and fully present to each moment, to what it might offer. In, everydayness, in the everydayness of life, it is not the sort of waiting that um, is a type of laziness, just allowing things to pass us by in a lost haze. It doesn't mean not making decisions or moving on. Rather, it's about becoming more alive, more present to the moment, so that making risky decisions can be easier. Waiting and in the waiting, responding to the calling that God makes of us. Elijah waited for God to be God. Omri went on and said, to wait open-endedly is an enormously radical attitude towards life. So is to trust that something will happen to us that is far beyond our own imaginings. So too, we're back to control again, is giving up control over our future and letting God define our life, trusting that God molds us according to God's love and not according to our fear. Mm. That's more demanding stuff, isn't it? How good are we at letting go of the controlling reins Letting God be God. Waiting and responding to God's call demands sometimes courage and determination. Think back to Nelson Mandela, who spent 27 years, that's 10,000 days, as a political prisoner. During this time of waiting, the revolution was shaping. Discontent with apartheid was brewing in the soul of the country. 27 years of waiting and wondering, 10,000 nights of loneliness and separation. But in that waiting place, strength and focus and vision and determination were forged so that when the system of apartheid fell, Mandela was ready. And he says, it was during those long and hungry years that my hunger for the freedom of my own people became a hunger for the freedom of all people, white and black. When I walked out of prison, I knew my mission to liberate the oppressor and the oppressed. His mission, his calling, his life-changing offering to the world was shaped out of years of waiting before God. It's been a privilege, the job I do, because I listen to a lot of stories of how God has been at work in people's lives. And it is a huge privilege to listen and hear that. But I do see uh, in a lot of these stories that waiting on God, listening to God in prayer and in active service, listening to others and out of that waiting space, stepping forward to respond to God's call is often a marker of what, when something is really going on that is of God. And what I've become more and more sure of is that vocation is not just for the special few. It is a calling 
for everyone, a calling to respond to God's love, not just for those who are going to do particular jobs in the church. And as believers, we have a responsibility to wait on God and to respond to his love by offering ourselves for what it is that God needs us for. And that includes the coffee rotor. If you don't get anyone for your coffee rotor after my sermon, I'm giving up. <laughs> At different stages in life, it will be different challenges. Some very public, some very hidden, that's just between you and God. It will be to do with many areas in work, family life, community, not just the church. God's call is particular. And each thing that we offer and respond to is valid and important to God. It is about believing that God does indeed say, do not be afraid, I have something good for you and I have something for you to do. My grandmother used to say, I'm too old for dancing. And she was, you know, 80 and not in good health. And she said, I'm too old for dancing. But there was an awful lot that she did by her presence and her praying. So if you feel a little too old for dancing, there is a lot that you do by your presence and your praying. And each one of you have special and individual gifts that make you quite exceptionally different from the person sitting next to you or the person across the aisle. Waiting on God for God's voice to show you what he would have you do for the sake of the kingdom. Coming to the end now. Henri now and just again, he wrote about some friends of his who were trapeze artists. I love trapeze artists because I could never, ever, ever do it. And I'm not called to, so I'm okay. Um, and he had these trapeze artist friends who were called the Flying Rudellas. And they told Henri that there's a special relationship between the flyer and the one who catches on the trapeze. So you've got the person who flies and then the person who does the catching. I don't know which you'd rather be, a flyer or a catcher. We can talk about that over coffee. But the relationship is governed by important rules, such as the flyer is the one who lets go and the catcher is the one who catches. The flyer is the one who lets go, and the catcher is the one who catches. As the flyer swings on the trapeze high above the crowd, the moment comes when he must let go, and he flings his body out into midair, and his job is to keep flying and wait for the strong hands of the catcher to take hold of him at just the right moment. And one of the flying readers told Henri, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer's job is to wait in absolute trust, and the catcher will catch him, but he must wait for the moment. His job is not to flail about in anxiety. In fact, if it does, it could kill him. His job is to be still, to wait, to wait and to catch, and to wait is the hardest work of all. Will you wait? Will you catch? Will you be patient? Will you trust? 
How does God work in our world? Well, the story of Elijah does not have all the answers, but has some for us. It shows that God works through ordinary people to serve him in the nitty-gritty world that we live in. And it shows us that God works through those who wait and pray and listen and listen for the unexpected. And my prayer for you, as I always pray for the congregation I've preached to as I leave and through the coming week, my prayer for you is that you would be able to wait, to let God be God, and see where that leads you. See where that leads you. Thanks be to God. Amen.